Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare. This week, professor and author Laura Henry on environmentalism in Russia after the invasion of Ukraine. Well, I don't want to speak for all Western scholars, but I don't know anyone who's engaged in fieldwork in Russia at this time. Even many of the Russian scholars I know who engaged in this area of research have left. Russia's framework laws on paper, the environmental laws, are really quite rigorous. They're highly protective of both citizens and the environment. Most people would say there's been a significant implementation gap, but sets the stage for a kind of accountability politics. I'm certainly heartened by the fact that environmentalists in Russia, whether during the Soviet times or more recent times, have weathered a lot of obstacles, and many of them have refused to give up. There's a source of optimism in just that human determination. Laura Henry, welcome to Chatter. Thank you so much for having me, David. It's a pleasure to talk with you um, because some of these issues that we're going to be getting into during this conversation have been at the front of a lot of people's minds episodically, but but sometimes fade into the background with other events. And yet there's one heck of a story here across several decades having to do with environmental activism in the Soviet Union, in post-Soviet Russia, and uh, in the current day. So you've been you've been looking at this topic and related ones having to do with civil society in Russia for, for quite a while now. How did you first get interested in Russian studies of this nature? Well, this dates me a little bit, but I was in college when the Berlin Wall fell. And I think it might be hard for 20-somethings today to imagine that moment where it felt like just a whole world of possibilities were opening up. You could go to Eastern Europe, you could see things that we had been restricted from seeing, you could meet people, uh, economies were changing, uh, societies were changing, political systems were changing. And so I started studying the Russian language and also political science and history. And then after graduation, I had a Thomas J. Watson Fellowship, where I was able to travel for a year across the former Soviet Union, and I volunteered with many new environmental organizations. And you did really travel across. You went from uh, coast to coast, right? From St. Petersburg all the way to Vladivostok in your various research trips. Describe a little bit for people who have not done research in Russia, um, what it's like researching in in Moscow and St. Petersburg versus in some of the other cities that are much further afield from from those centers? Well, it's an interesting question because I think it has changed a lot over time. When I first arrived in Russia, first in 1991 and then again in 1993, the country was in the midst of a very difficult moment. There was hyperinflation. People had lost their light life savings, um, things that had been taken for granted about everything from the healthcare system to the university system to the employment system were all changing very rapidly. And there was a lot of disorientation. At the same time, some people were able to seize the moment to do new things, grassroots projects, exciting community development activities, um, things they had never been able to do in the past. And when I first arrived, I think... Um, 
I think Moscow and St. Petersburg were very exciting places to be. There was a lot of change going on. But I always, from the very start, really enjoyed getting beyond those two cities and out into the provinces. Um, In fact, one of my first long stays in Russia was in the city of Vladimir, which is on the Golden Ring, just outside of Moscow, a beautiful city of onion dome churches and um, history. And it really felt a little bit, I guess, like what it must be like to come to America. And if you only go to New York and Los Angeles, you sort of don't meet a certain kind of American or you don't hear a certain kind of life story. And so I always found people in the provinces very warm, very welcoming, very willing to share their stories. And to be honest, as I matured as a into a scholar, I was better able to get people to speak with me from local administrations, regional administrations, than I was necessarily from the federal administration in Moscow. Now, do you ascribe that more to, I don't know, society and personality types uh, away from the centers or more to the prevalence of more of a, an urban security culture, if you will, in a place like Moscow? Yeah, I do think that um, in the 1990s, you know, things were quite open everywhere, including in Moscow and St. Petersburg, albeit quite chaotic. Mm -hmm. And often, you know, the government wasn't actually able to enforce its own laws and wasn't actually able to carry out the projects that it had designed. But as we entered the, the turn of the century, the new millennium under Vladimir Putin, things became increasingly centralized. And it was very clear that people in Moscow in particular became much more cautious about sharing information. They were more reluctant to be interviewed. Um, They didn't necessarily want to go on the record. So partly that was kind of a a re-centralization of the political system. Um, But in the provinces where people lived often more proximate to the environmental problems that the state was trying to address, whether that was industrial pollution or forest fires or um, a host of of different issues, the Chernobyl zone, for example, people were more willing to talk in a practical fashion rather than a politicized fashion about what they were grappling with, what what they were hoping to do, um, and what they expected from the government. And talking about those days in the 1990s, it's kind of hard to put ourselves back there now because there's so much that's built into our reflections now. But this is before the the murder of Anna Politkovskaya and mm. the poisoning of Litvinenko and so many of the things that we just now take for granted that became part of post-Soviet Russia. But in the 1990s, it you make it sound like it was a, a hopeful time in some ways, chaotic, but but there were a yeah, lot of opportunities for things for to society. happen in the civil society. Um, and I think for Russian environmentalists, it was the best of times and the worst of times together. They really um, found it difficult to you know, get the state to make commitments that it could actually follow through on. At the same time, they could be critical. They could be partners. They could work with international organizations. They could engage in multi-country projects. There was a real sense of openness um, that there were lots of different good ideas, lots of cross-fertilization transnationally, and that Russian activists were really becoming part of a global conversation about the environment. So the 1990s were exceptionally difficult for average Russians, but they did have a silver lining in the sense that activists dreamed big in the 1990s, I think. And it was really interesting to see the regional variation at that time, which is another thing that you don't see very much anymore. But at that time, 
Russian federalism really led to a variety of different kinds of local regimes um, in different regions of Russia. Partly it was federalism by default because the central government in Moscow wasn't able to extend its influence. It didn't have the capacity to govern the entire country. Right. And sometimes that meant that there was, you know, a mini despot or a mini authoritarian leader leading the province. But other times it meant that there was a lot of experimentation with new forms of governance and private public partnerships and things like that. Well, let's... um... Let's set the stage for just how Im- important it was uh, to have those dynamics by, by by revisiting the Soviet era. So if you could characterize for us the environmentalism such that it was during the Soviet era and how Russians, if Russians, and if so, how Russians were able to express their views about the environment within the Soviet system. And that, that sets up the contrast with what you were seeing on the ground and talking to people about in the the decades after? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. I mean, there were some contradictory trends, I would say. I I think Russian culture, whether you look at literature, poetry, or music, exhibits an enormous love of nature, a real sort of joy at going into the forest, whether you're picking berries or gathering mushrooms or, you know, sitting around the, the fire. Um, and that love of nature and that kind of understanding that the forest is part of, and the stepland, the grassland is part of Russian national identity is something that's much deeper even than the Soviet Union. But during the Soviet period, the state had a monopoly on kind of organization and public life. So if you had a chess club or a bird watching club, it was supposed to be the chess club under the Communist Party, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? You you could do things, but they had to be sanctioned by some state organization. Um, so there really wasn't a lot of autonomous activism or organizing. Nevertheless, people might be surprised to know that there was still an, a kind of an environmental movement in the late Soviet period. And it took two different forms. The first one was um, a group of scientists who had grave misgivings about some of the projects that the Soviet state was undertaking, whether it was river diversion or, you know, um, the Virgin Soils Project under Khrushchev or just other forms of mega projects, industrial projects that maybe weren't fully thought out. And they actually tried to carve out a space for themselves to offer a kind of scientific expertise that was a kind of an environmental critique um, and engage the state using the language of the state at times, right? Efficiency and, you know, trying to trying to master nature, but also, you know, respect nature and where how you could get the best outcome. And this is this is a really interesting effort that was mostly based in scientific institutions across the Soviet Union. At the same time, starting kind of in the 1960s and then really flowering in the 1980s, there were these youth clubs at universities that were called the Drujina. And they were places where friends who cared about the environment would come together and they would go out on the weekend and they would go camping and they would do surveys of endangered species and they would see if people were illegally cutting down trees or engaged in hunting or poaching and they would engage in kind of what's called social control, the citizen's right to sort of enforce Soviet laws. And those were not, but those were not linked officially to the Communist Party? Well, they were often sort of branch organizations under the Komsomol, the Communist Youth League, but they, in practice, 
carved out a fair bit of autonomy for themselves. Once again, not by challenging the state directly, but by saying the state has environmental laws. We care about the environment. We want to help the state uphold the environmental laws. Um, and, and a lot of people participated in those university clubs, went on to become the founding members of many of the key environmental organizations of post-Soviet Russia. Oh, okay. So the roots were there. Um, was, was Chernobyl a, a foundational event in any way, or did it interact with some of those trends in, in the late eighties because of the, at least in the Southwest, um, of Russia, that, that part of the, the, you know, border area with Belarus and Ukraine, that it was unavoidable (laughs) that there was a major environmental impact. Did, Did that have any effect on the, what we'll call the movement, even though it wasn't quite there yet? Yeah, that's, that's another great question. I think that um, the effects of Chernobyl were so multifaceted, we could probably spend all day talking about them. But I'll highlight two, one from above and one from below. Uh, Gorbachev, in his memoirs, writes about how the Chernobyl disaster shocked the system. It showed a kind of bureaucratic cover up a lack of information, a lack of attention to public safety. Um, And it showed that technology that had been thought to be very safe, almost infallible, um, was in fact vulnerable in ways that really hadn't even been understood at the higher levels of the regime. And so it spurred on Gorbachev's reform program and ended up creating space for more activism, more civil society organization, more public commentary. From below, it also was a shock, and it really she shifted public opinion. I think about nuclear power in many places, and in particular in some regions. And I would highlight um, the work of Jane Dawson here. But in Ukraine and in Lithuania, it prompted these kind of environmental protests that had a nationalist tinge. You know, here we are. We don't even get to govern ourselves, and we're the victims of this terrible tragedy. You know, this this regime doesn't govern in our interests. They've endangered our lives, they've endangered the lives of our children, they've contaminated our homeland. And it really it did spur on a kind of um popular mobilization that contributed, it did not cause, but it contributed to the eventual collapse of the Soviet Union. It's it's so interesting that when I I, I would guess if we were to poll one hundred Americans. Yeah. And just say something like environmental issues in Russia. Um, most of them would probably just stare back at us. But the ones who responded, I think probably a, a majority of that small number would think of Chernobyl because that's entered the public consciousness in America in a way that so many other issues just about, you know, permafrost and Siberian forests and oil and gas and its effect that's out there. But they don't have a successful TV movie like Chernobyl that that has drawn people to it. And so maybe there's almost an outsized projection onto Chernobyl as uh, being even more important than it was in some ways because we have focused on it more. Yeah, it was definitely a critical juncture. but I, yeah. And I think it, it did raise environmental awareness um, in society in general. And I, it had a profound effect in Ukraine. Uh, Belarus and Lithuania. I think right. in Russia, the effect was a little bit more ambivalent. Um, there was 
there was, you know, most of Russia is quite distant from the region that was affected by mm-hmm. Chernobyl. Um, but it raised awareness that the regime might not be telling the truth. And that sort of recognition bled into other avenues, mm-hmm. other areas of life. Right. Well, something clearly was working because when the, the Russian Federation uh, completed its constitution, it, it did include a clause saying that each citizen had the right to a favorable environment, reliable information about its condition, and to compensation for damage caused to his or her health or property by ecological violations. The U.S. Constitution has no such clause. So to me, that's remarkable that that is in the Russian constitution. Of course, as, as we'll talk about, that doesn't necessarily translate into action. And many environmental groups of different sizes and flavors have run up against the fact that this is not being honored particularly well in many ways. But how notable is it that the Russian government at least pays lip service to this, which allows for environmental groups in the post-Soviet era to at least potentially flourish. Yeah, that's a great point. In fact, Russia's basic laws, its framework laws on paper, the environmental laws are really quite strict, quite rigorous. They're highly protective of both citizens and the environment. Um, Now, some people, most people would say there's been a significant implementation gap into whether the government has actually been able to, in practice, you know, uphold those principles and standards that it laid out. But you're right, it sets the stage for a kind of accountability politics where environmental groups can say, you know, I'm just holding you to your own, you know, commitment. This is right. Look here. It's in the law. Exactly. And and definitely that has been um, a kind of uh, language that environmentalists have used in the past. And indeed, the early days of the Yeltsin administration, which was the immediate uh, government after the collapse of the Soviet Union were really an exciting time for environmentalists because Yeltsin created a ministry of ecology, something that the country had never had. Um, and, you know, quite a well-known environmental scientist was put in charge of it. And some major pieces of legislation were passed in the 1990s. And really, um, you know, the country seemed to be on the upswing. It, it uh, wouldn't be lagging behind internationally mm-hmm. and environmental issues anymore could actually leap forward, leap ahead. But uh, spoiler alert, there is no (laughs) Ministry of Ecology now, right? (laughs) Alas. Yeah, the glory days. Glory days are over. Um, I do want to talk about some of the the nuances of the environmental movement in in Russia that grew in, in this time period of the 90s and then evolved in the decades since. A lot of it's encapsulated in your book, red to green environmental activism in post-Soviet Russia. And in that book, you you provide a lot of details from research you did primarily in five different cities. Uh, let's see if I remember them. St. Petersburg, Novosibirsk, Vladivostok, Vladimir, Bryansk. I can't remember yep. what the fifth Bryansk. one was. Yep. And my pronunciation yep. might be so bad you don't recognize them. But no, it's perfect. Very good. Five different cities of different you know, size, character, location, uh, political environment to to get some variation so that you could do some real analysis on this. And you also looked at three different categories of environmental groups. You looked at uh, grassroots organizations, that is just citizens getting together and doing things from the ground up. Uh, you looked at government affiliated or sponsored organizations. 
And then you looked at what you called the professional organizations or ones that typically were a little more organized and often had more foreign support. And I'm hoping you can use that framework as we as we talk through this to talk about some of the most interesting things you found about the level of environmental activism in each of these cities, because I certainly know what I would expect going in that St. Petersburg as the gateway to the West would have the biggest avenue into environmentalism and there would be exponentially more organizations per capita than anywhere else in Russia. Um, but you tell us, what what did you find when it came to these different organizations and their their prevalence and their activity in these cities that you went to? Yeah, well, to start, I should say, I was you know, trying to explore an assumption that we had in American scholarship at the time, which might in retrospect sound a little bit romanticized or a little bit naive, but the idea was that if you take away the obstacle of the state preventing people from coming together with freedom of assembly and freedom of speech, you know, once that's removed, you know, civil society will spring up sort of naturally as people are empowered to address their own problems, things like that. But we know, of course, that the ability of society to flourish and it depends on the economic context, the political context, the local political context, and then in the case of post-Soviet Russia, also on the degree of attention that um, the region got from international donors and international environmental organizations. So it was interesting. I I went in just as you, thinking that St. Peter's would St. Petersburg would be far and away the most active city in terms of environmental organizations. And and there were many organizations in St. Petersburg, but on a per capita basis, it actually wasn't particularly notable. Instead, what I discovered is that different regions, depending on the nature of the environmental grievance, developed different kinds of environmental activism. And so probably the most notable was really in Vladivostok. And Vladivostok was a pretty chaotic city at that time, um, not particularly well governed as the trash piled up in the streets, which, you know. And, and to frame this for people, Laura, Vladivostok being um, the Russian Far East, you know, very close to the borders with uh, China and North, North Korea, Korea, very exactly. far separated geographically and in other ways from uh, European Russia, um, but with some acute environmental concerns, right? Right. And one of those, thank you very much for that. One of those acute environmental concerns, which was concerning to the local population, but perhaps more concerning to the international environmental community, was the fate of the Siberian tiger. Right. The declining population of Siberian tigers, the declining habitat for Siberian tigers, the risk of poaching of Siberian tigers for their skins and bones and other things. And that concern, in addition to concerns that had to do with whale populations and that had to do with certain um, boreal forest tree species that exist in that region of the Russian Far East and other threatened um mammals like the Amur leopard, attracted a lot of attention um, from the international community and really gave rise to a group of highly capable, well-staffed, you know, proto-NGOs, kind of new sort of interest groups that attracted some great scientific talent, that attracted some really creative activists, um, and that, you know, 
were much larger than you would expect for that particular region, given that particular political climate. Now, in some ways, this was um, very exciting. There were lots of projects there. There was a branch organization of WWF. Um, there was a branch organization of the international group Global Witness. There were some um, U.S. charities funding research on salmon and tigers. Um, at the same time, what happened in Vladivostok is that all of this really interesting work on wildlife and, and biodiversity became quite detached from the interests and concerns of the local population. So as these groups of environmentalists were seeking partnerships with foreign scientists, were looking for grant funding from Pacific Environment or USAID, they didn't always have deep roots in society, right? They, they saw a problem, they wanted to address it as efficiently and effectively as possible. Whereas if you ask people in the city, what, well, what are you worried about? They were often more worried about water quality, air quality, who was taking away the trash, who was taking care of the city parks, you know, who was worrying about urban trees, who was educating the next generation of children um, as kind of social services really eroded during that time period. So you had those groups too, grassroots organizations that were often working on local issues, um, but they were really quite separate. They often didn't even know each other. I would go from one to the other in one day, meeting with, interviewing, interacting with them, maybe going to one of their events or participating in a project and discover that although they were maybe only 10 blocks from each other, they weren't acquainted and they um, didn't interact with each other. And, and why do you think that is? What are the dynamics within the um, the funding, the competition, the treatment from the government? What, what are the, the factors that help explain how these similarly placed organizations weren't interacting, much less really cooperating effectively together? Yeah. And I should be careful to say that, you know, not, I'm not saying one is better and one is worse or um, necessarily. They're actually quite complementary in some ways, but really they drew upon very different skill sets. One of the remarkable things about Russia's post-Soviet environmental movement is how educated people in professional environmental organizations are. The number of PhDs is simply astonishing. And one of the things that was happening at this time is that the universities, the scientific institutes were underfunded, the buildings weren't being maintained, people didn't have the capacity to purchase new laboratory equipment, they didn't have the budget to carry out interesting research. And so many of them, deeply concerned about the environment, but also wanting to put their scientific skills to use, gravitated toward these more professional NGOs. The staff of organizations like Greenpeace and WWF and some of the other big groups was really amazingly well-educated group of people. But they saw their work and their project as quite different than sort of parents and neighborhood leaders and school teachers who were working on local issues, what they would call milky or small issues. Um, so these individuals with their, their high levels of education often spoke English or they were able to learn English or German or, um, or French, and they were able to navigate that international sphere. They were comfortable engaging their counterparts in other places. Now, for grassroots organizations, many of them had learned a slightly different lesson from the Soviet period. And that was the idea that Getting involved in anything too political, 
too high profile, too critical. Well, that politics, it was kind of a dirty business. It wasn't really meant for average people. And what you should do together is instead is pull together with your neighborhood, with your school, and and engage in volunteer labor and, and try to get something done without necessarily making it excessively political. Um, and so those grassroots organizations often didn't really either have the ability, capacity, or even interest to engage sort of foreign donors. Now, sometimes they did, and sometimes they tried. And sometimes they did win small grants, but often when you win a grant, you had to make a report, you had to have accounting, you had to have a budget, you had to, you know, have a board of directors and you needed to formalize your organization in a way that some of these smaller groups just simply couldn't do. Yeah, that presents a real challenge. And I mean, that's a challenge in any nonprofit environment, even in the United States. But there was another challenge in Russia that really started to develop more as the 90s transitioned and as Putin was was running the country, which is the, let's put it politely, the strong suspicion of almost all organizations receiving foreign funding. And even if it's foreign funding to save the, the Siberian tiger or to work on forestry issues, the idea is you know, why are you taking foreign money? Are you, are you spying on Russian industry and military when you're doing this so-called environmentalism? Um, I have a feeling that that probably affected some of these organizations more than others, but how would you describe it as, as we transition into the, the new millennium, this, this feeling of suspicion and any, any funding coming from abroad inherently creates a danger for these organizations? Yeah, that's a great point. We did see that sort of change over time. I think the first change really was that the government became increasingly intolerant of criticism. So many of the professionalized groups adopted a kind of, you know, more advocacy-oriented, interest group-oriented political style where they would comment on the government's proposed legislation and they would offer critical commentary about programs or policies that weren't working well. And in the 1990s, it wasn't always effective, but it was accepted part of politics. And what we see during the first and then the second uh, Putin administration, so basically 2000 to 2008, is an increasing intolerance of criticism and a kind of sense that, hey, you know, you should work with the state. You should be a partner. This the, the government is doing hard work. You shouldn't just be a critic. So there was an early shift away from this idea of a kind of adversarial or pluralistic civil society, even in those early days. And there also began to be a rhetoric of, you know, some of these groups are probably anti-Russian. They do get this foreign money. You know, there's a possibility they could even engage in industrial espionage. That became a rhetoric that you would hear, but it wasn't really fully developed until after the Bolotnaya protests in 2011-12, when an unprecedented number of Russians came out onto the streets to express concern about election fraud in the parliamentary elections of December 2011. And as those protests grew, and admittedly they were primarily in Moscow and St. Petersburg, a little bit in other cities, protesters uh, began to chant things like Russia without Putin and to express overt criticism of the regime. 
Well, those protests were unsuccessful in the sense that Vladimir Putin was elected president in May of 2012, beginning his third term as president. And eventually, with selective repression, some people were prosecuted, the protests died down. But I think the regime felt like it had learned a lesson, that it was concerned that it was vulnerable to this kind of mass demonstration, and it suspected that protesters had been supported by the United States and other foreign powers. And so they passed something called the Foreign Agent Law in 2012. And the Foreign Agent Law says that if you engage in political activity and you receive money from a foreign organization, you have to register yourself with the Department of Justice or you'll be involuntarily placed on a registry and fined and audited and all sorts of other things. Now, there is supposed to be an exemption in that foreign agent law for uh, people who work on the preservation of flora and fauna. So environmentalism (laughs) or certain kinds of environmentalism are supposed to be exempt. In theory. In theory, but in practice, both human rights groups and environmental groups were disproportionately targeted by the foreign agent law. And even those groups that were not directly affected certainly learned the lesson from those who were that, oh, okay, we've entered a new political era. We need to be much more cautious. Certainly a chilling effect, right? Even if you're not targeted, you're going to, you're going to be thinking about it in a way you weren't before. Exactly. Um, Two, two angles on that. And, and one seems like a, a positive direction and the other one seems more negative. The positive is one organization that I'd heard of before that I believe is still functioning now is uh, Green World, which is an organization I think founded near St. Petersburg uh, quite a long time ago, but still functioning, trying to do some things around the Gulf of Finland in particular. And an organization that has I think, if I recall correctly, it has explicitly regional goals. It's not just about Russia. They're trying to work for the whole Baltic Sea and across the Gulf to Finland itself. Um, And if they're still operating and they're still doing good work, despite this repression, we can call it, uh, something is still going okay (laughs) if if they're allowed to, to do this much. So that's the positive angle. Can you talk a little bit, whether about Green World or other similar organizations that have managed to keep going that now have an institutional history of some 30 or 35 years like Green World and what it is that, in a sense, they're doing right within the system to be able to keep doing their work. Green World is such a great example. It's a really remarkable organization led by Alec Badrov, who is based in Sosnovy Bor, which is a city on the Gulf of Finland outside of St. Petersburg. It's a group that originally came together to protest the cutting down of pine trees in the village, um, which the village is named after these pine trees, but eventually broadened its work to try to monitor the Leningrad Atomic Energy Station and then to work with other states on the Baltic Sea for the preservation of the Gulf of Finland and the Baltic region more broadly. Now, the organization has been under pressure numerous times, and Oleg Badrov has, you know, personally been under a lot of pressure. And actually, my understanding was the organization had to be liquidated about five years ago. Oh my! It still functions in a small way as a more informal effort. And I think Oleg still maintains his environmental activism. But it was an example of a group that persisted for a long time. And what I would say was really, really impressive about what Green World did is they managed to combine international collaboration 
the use of foreign grants to engage in projects that they found meaningful, but maintain deep roots in their own community. Uh, they had community supporters, they had supporters in St. Petersburg. And so they avoided that kind of trap of the professional organizations of getting detached from society and then becoming more vulnerable to a charge that you're working in the foreign interest. Um, but they also grew beyond that typical grassroots organization to have quite a high level of capacity to be able to engage in this monitoring, to communicate, to have put out international um, uh, translations of their, their information. And there are still a number of really impressive environmental organizations at work in Russia today. It's just that the space for their activism has been very circumscribed and they are vulnerable really at any time to a kind of selective repression because the laws, both the foreign agent law, um, you know, a number of laws, the laws on extremism, uh, the laws on assembly, getting a, a permit to to actually hold any kind of protest or rally, they're written in such a either vague or narrow way that they're really difficult to comply with. And so everybody's in a situation where if they put a foot wrong, the regional administration could say, okay, well, we've had it with you and we're going to either put you on the foreign agent registry or find some other way to repress you as an organization. Yeah. And the, the negative side I mentioned was um, moving from a particular anecdote, <laughs> but the anecdote might be reflective of the overall concern, which is the case of Alexander Nikitin, if I, if I recall right, from the late 90s, who was basically a whistleblower talking about the leaking of nuclear uh, radioactive pollution from nuclear submarines and calling it a Chernobyl in slow motion. And he was actually brought up on treason charges, even though he was making an environmental claim that it sure sounded like was consistent with that part of the Russian Federation constitution. Um, talk through that case, uh, what happened and the effect that it had on other environmentalists. Yeah, I mean, actually, Nikitin was prosecuted relatively early on. Um, and so, you know, his case is actually um, a case that had kind of a happy ending in some ways, where he was eventually released from prison. And I don't have the dates at my fingertips, but he um, he was tried. Mm -hmm. He was prosecuted. He was um, put into prison uh, for treasonous activity, but eventually a human rights lawyer was able to gain his release. And he continued to be active in the Russian environmental movement. In fact, he was a major player in trying to found a Green Party in Russia um, in the early 2000s. At the same time, his case was indicative of something that has continued and grown to today which is that there are some issues that are amenable to activism and less likely to be repressed. And there are other issues that are really no-go in areas that are securitized. So for example, obviously the military itself, anything to do with nuclear power and nuclear waste is highly sensitive and likely to lead to scrutiny and arrest. But what's interesting is some of the issues that have become more securitized over time. Mm 
So for example, when I started working on the Russian environmental movement, you could study oil and gas and mining. You could go to oil and gas and mining regions. You could talk to people in the oil companies. You could actually visit installations. I visited um, oil extraction installations in the Arctic. There was kind of a robust dialogue about corporate social responsibility and how these groups should relate to local communities. But over time, that area became an essential part of the state's vision of how it was going to regain its great power status. It became an area that was not amenable to criticism anymore. And it became an area in which it was really, really difficult to do research. And so we've seen more and more issues go onto that list of highly sensitive issues that the regime doesn't want to talk about. Both due to that and due to the um, the war in Ukraine, is it possible to do research on environmentalism and social activism in Russia right now, or are all Western scholars basically done doing field research for the time being? Well, I don't want to speak for all Western scholars, but I don't know. I don't know anyone who's engaged in field work in Russia at this time. Yeah. Not, not, not anybody based in the U.S. or Canada or, or mm-hmm, Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm yeah. sure there are p- people out there, but even many of the Russian scholars I know who engaged in this area of research have left mm-hmm. um, and fled, you know, to Finland or to the Czech Republic or to the Baltic states. Um, and so I do worry about the chilling effect you know, not only on the activism itself, but also on the monitoring, right, the right. research, kind of just our understanding of what the problems and challenges are. Um, and and also journalism, of course, like we don't, it's very, very difficult to do independent journalism in Russia now. It was becoming increasingly difficult, but there were regional outlets that were persevering. And then the war in Ukraine and the new laws on the dissemination of false information and things like that have made it almost impossible to be an independent journalist in Russia. So we are entering a period in which we are, in some cases, really not going to know what's going on Mm -hmm. in some of these regions. Now, the one area that still remains fairly vibrant is some areas of social media. So Telegram channels, um, Contactia to a certain degree, which is the Russian Facebook. Outlets like that, you still get discussions um, about environmental problems. And so that might be where most of our research comes from, in the, at least for the next little while. Absolutely. I mean, it, it still provides a window, uh, whether that window has full reliability and validity compared to all the other methods you've used, because... You know, going back, you, you were looking at survey data of the Russian people and how they felt about environmentalism and, you know, the, the typical idea of we care about the environment, we say we do, but when it comes to doing something about it, they express, well, you know, not my issue. Um, but we don't even know if that's true anymore. I'm not sure there's any reliable survey data uh, from Russia in the last several years that touch on any of these environmental topics. Yeah, there has been some survey data, but increasingly there's a lot of discussion about whether or not surveys in a highly authoritarian climate and certainly surveys under condition of war really reflect public attitudes effectively because of, you know, who is actually answering these surveys? Mm -hmm. Do they feel like they have to mask their real opinion? Um, It used to be that even though the surveys maybe were flawed, you could at least look at variation over time. 
yeah. from one yeah. flawed survey to the next flawed survey to yeah. sort of see how things were moving. But I do think survey data is is not mm-hmm. going to be especially useful in the next yeah. until really the war's over for sure. I mean, it, it's a lot of uncertainties. You mentioned the oil and gas sector and the fact that you had the ability to visit some of these facilities. In the West, the environmental movement going back many decades has really centered in at times on the hydrocarbon industry and made that one of one of their main areas of focus uh, on environmental issues. Is is that true in Russia? Because a lot of the things we've talked about so far are you know, Siberian tigers or some of these organizations in cities. And I'm wondering whether there's the same focus on uh, extractive industry, oil, gas, even mining in Russia, and whether the absolute explosion of Russian oil and gas and reliance on oil and gas for their uh, for their budget, does that mean that, that that dynamic is different in Russia than than we're used to here? Well, I think... Definitely the major environmental organizations care deeply about extraction in all of its forms, whether it's oil, gas, mining, timber, fishing. And they have worked to try to regulate and monitor those organizations. And in fact, there have been some really creative efforts. Like one example, um, WWF Russia, which was just declared a foreign agent a couple of weeks ago, actually much to people's surprise because it was one of the groups that still had a cooperative relationship with the government. It was really, um, did a lot of the research that the Russian government needed to have done in order to comply with a variety of international environmental conventions. So it was useful so to the it government. It was useful, exactly. Um, so it was some something of a surprise when it was declared a foreign agent. But nevertheless, they engaged in a bunch of really creative projects. One of them was that they decided that they would rank Russian oil and gas companies based on their provision of information about the environment and labor. That sounds sensitive to me. Well, you know, it was funny because I chatted with somebody who was in charge of the rankings and he said, oh, nobody wanted to comply. Only a few, you know, they had a low, low response rate for the first uh, ranking to get the data. And then when it came out, oh, companies were mad. What? I'm at the bottom. You know, how did that happen? And they actually, there was some pressure toward corporate social responsibility because many of these companies, you know, nothing is truly national anymore. Even a state-owned company often has projects with multinationals. They might list themselves on the London stock market. They might seek money from the European Bank of Reconstruction and Development or some other international bank. And those banks and shareholders and partners have to meet minimum levels of transparency and corporate social responsibility. So this was developing in Russia. I mean, it wasn't shutting down the oil and gas sector by any means, but it was mitigating some of the worst characteristics of it. And so that work was underway and there were some really interesting developments. That work has been mostly halted at this point. In fact, the war and sanctions specifically have given Russian companies an opportunity to lobby the government to roll back a bunch of environmental policies, to say now in this time of war and economic stress, now is not the time to be thinking about carbon emissions. Now's not the time to be, you know, thinking about these onerous environmental laws. Let's suspend them. Let's suspend enforcement temporarily. 
The one thing I do want to say, though, is even as we saw those big professional groups thinking about things like extraction and biodiversity loss and forest fires, if you talk to average Russians, they still care about things that are a little bit closer to home. Air quality is a real issue. Air quality in Russian cities can be very poor, especially in um, southern Siberia and Mm -hmm. in the Ural Mountains. Mm -hmm. And also really care about trash and waste and waste disposal and the fact that Russia still doesn't have recycling. And, um, you know, the trash is Russia's building incinerators instead of other options. And these incinerators are often sited quite close to neighborhoods. Um, And so that was a real growing effort um, within the environmental movement as well prior to the war. You know, what you're describing there, Laura, sounds like community concerns where I live, right? People are concerned about trash pickup. People are concerned about clean water. Obviously, we've had stories in the United States about everything from environmental damage from uh, train derailments to uh, extreme problems with water in cities. Um, Those are public service concerns, not solely environmental concerns, but there's a chance perhaps for the environmental organizations and movements we've been talking about to essentially piggyback onto those concerns to kind of expand the view of wider environmental issues. Yeah, that's a great point. And I actually made that argument in a journal article just before the war in Ukraine started, which was arguing that the regime had fairly effectively insulated itself from some of these professional groups by, with the foreign agent label, the anti-Russian, you know, the idea that oil and gas and extraction was essential to Russia's economic growth and recovery. It was part of the national pride. But what the regime was more vulnerable to and had a more difficult time countering was average citizens saying, wow, the landfill down the street is leaking, you know, noxious fumes and the chil- all the children in my, my daughter's elementary school are getting sick. Or um, I'm breathing in such terrible, uh, you know, soot and smoke, you know, that I have to run an air filter in my home. And when you frame things as health and children's health and kind of basic standards of living, um, that was much harder for the regime to paint as somehow... Uh, you know, international conspiracy conspiracy to undermine uh, Russia's greatness. There's a there's a real challenge in, I think, looking at social movements in general, but particularly environmental movements. And and I would suggest probably it's even tougher in Russia than many other places. And that's evaluating the effectiveness of a movement and of an environmental movement and how you measure success. Talk through how, how your thinking on this has evolved over the years, how how you and, and through you, we can judge whether there is progress because of the Russian environmental movement. Mm, that's always a really tough question. I think that would be a tough question about the American environmental movement as well in some ways. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, what I find as a scholar is that I do my best work when I really listen to people and I really listen to people tell me about how they evaluate success and how they think about their work. And in my book, I talk about three different kinds of success that people were concerned about. One was, okay, they created this network or this community group or this organization, and they they just, they wanted it to 
survive, you know, to do good work. They wanted to find a way to keep people engaged if they had a professional staff to keep paying their salaries, you know, to do one project and the next and the next and to keep going. You know, they just wanted to create, you know, a network of environmentalists in Russia. But of course, the success that we usually think about, that we care most about, is substantive progress, new laws, new policies, better air quality, better water quality, you progress toward reducing carbon emissions and all of those things. And of course, that's what the groups want themselves as well. That's what they're most concerned about. Um, and then the third thing I'll just mention is that I think a lot of activists who are very self-aware also want to transform Russia's political system into a system that's more open to citizen input and citizen participation. Now, have they achieved any of these goals? You know, they were really well on their way to creating that network of environmental organizations and concerned citizens. And the numbers of organizations and the types of organizations was really growing throughout the early 2000s and even into up to 2000. 11, 12. Um, I think that that's very difficult now. I think if you're an organization, you attract attention, you attract scrutiny. Where does your money come from? I think that's a very tough niche to be in. So what we see now are more online communities of discussion, mm -hmm. more kind of social media playing a role of coordination. Um, maybe, you know, well, you can't do it now since the war in Ukraine, but sometimes a small rally in front of the city hall you know, with posters complaining about about whatever the problem of the day is, right? So I think that was going well. In terms of actually, you know, making progress on Russia's environmental goals, there was one really area of remarkable success, I think, in the post-Soviet period, and that was in setting aside um, new territories for preservation or conservation. Okay. There were a number of national parks created, um, territories that were expanded. Now, it wasn't perfect. You know, there were incursions. There was, it was difficult to monitor these territories. Um, but by and large, there was some really creative work going on in that regard. And I think there were also some very strong laws passed, although they weren't necessarily always implemented. So, um, I mean, other outcomes are a little bit more ambivalent, depending on measures of biological conservation, certain animal species. Carbon emission is one of the most complicated ones, for example. Mm -hmm. So Russia, you know, one of the fourth, the fourth largest carbon emitter, if you, if you disaggregate the EU. But because of the industrial collapse of the 1990s, when the Soviet economy collapsed, uh, emissions plunged during that period. And so Russia still hasn't reached 1990 levels of emissions, although they, they are growing when they really have great scope for cutting them. And, and so that's more ambivalent. The greatest failure, of course, and environmentalists will tell you this themselves, those who really thought about this issue, is in the transformation of Russian, the Russian political system, yeah. which instead of becoming more and more open to citizen participation and input became more and more closed. You know, this, I think, becomes even more challenging, like everything else, in, in the wake of the invasion of Ukraine, because at least then you had uh, forums like the Arctic Council, where you had some interaction on issues related to the environment and you had some visibility into what was going on. And it just seems to me like it's a very depressing story now. And I've you know, seen some of your presentations in the last 
year talking about the the effects of this on Russian environmentalism, but also just international cooperation on issues of the commons. And I wonder if you can characterize that a bit. What are you hearing from your contacts or what is it safe to analyze about you know, what the damage is in the medium and long term from uh, not the direct military conflict, but the effects of the military conflict? Well, the effects of the military conflict environmentally, of course, are most devastating for Ukraine itself. And the destruction of ecosystems, of fertile agricultural soil, um, the damage to air and water quality, you know, of course, the loss of life and injury, casualties, um, the the carbon emissions of the war, which the Ukrainians are actually trying to keep track of and actually charge against Russia at the UNFCCC in the next climate negotiations, all of those things, absolutely devastating. But in Russia itself, you know, we have seen a generation of young activists flee the country. Now, that doesn't mean they cease their activism. But can they influence what happens inside of Russia from abroad? That's a very open question. They're going to try. They're going to try to use digital networks. They're going to try to use information campaigns. But we just don't know. We just don't know what effect that will have. And we don't know when they'll go back. And we don't even know if they'll all go back once they have the opportunity. So that's a tremendous loss. The other thing that's lost is decades and decades of scientific cooperation. There were many collaborative projects going on with Russian scientists and scholars, data collection, information sharing, all of those things are broken. And then I think what's more of an open question is how and whether and if Russia is going to continue to participate in some of the big international environmental conventions. And there are some real tensions there. Because, for example, in the wake of the invasion, the Ukrainian government said, let's not invite Russia to any of these big global meetings anymore. They should be kicked out, right? They Mm -hmm. should be. At the same time, Russia is a consequential and enormous territory of multiple ecosystems where there are transnational problems, transnational species of birds and marine mammals. And it's a difficult issue for people who really care about the environment, whether or not to try to continue to cooperate with Russia at some minimal way, at least with those Russians who are not part of the regime, but instead are kind of on the ground trying to work on these issues. So unfortunately, it's a pretty bleak picture for both domestic environmental activism and for international cooperation. I mean, when you ask people for a silver lining, they say, well, maybe it won't last very long. And then that's the open question of how long does this period go on? How long does the war in Ukraine continue? How long does the Putin regime continue? And, you know, that's something that nobody can answer at this point. So it's clear that the war has you know, disrupted environmental cooperation. But I'm curious what it's done to climate policy, because at at previous times in the past few decades, when there have been these, we would say these exogenous events to environmental policy, like a massive recession, right, in the financial crisis, that that had an effect on the government's uh, ability or willingness to care about environmental issues. Well, now you've got a war that Putin is trying to pretend isn't affecting the whole society, but whether it's conscription or whether it's uh, budgetary issues that are coming up, it it does. And it would stand to reason that there are some effects of this 
on the government's uh, ability to focus and interest in focusing on climate policy. What what have you seen or picked up on this front? Yeah, I do think that by and large, the war has been quite negative for climate policy because it has accentuated obstacles to climate policymaking in Russia, and it has diminished opportunities for environmental policymaking in Russia. So in terms of enhancing obstacles, it has many climate activists have been affected um, by the foreign agent law and by other forms of repression, and many of them have left the country. So you lose that kind of domestic activism and you lose that domestic, you don't lose it, but the domestic science, the ability of scientists to do their work is dramatically reduced. And the external pressures, as you said, like the Arctic Council with the suspended participation of the other seven Arctic states, that also that pressure point is is lost. Um, and, you know, to the degree to which the regime feels um, it has the perception that it is a victim of um, the collective West led by NATO that wants to see Russia sort of brought to its knees, its inclination to engage in anything cooperative is very low. And what's a shame about that is that there were some positive signs before the war. Um, There were some really interesting regional projects uh, to experiment with renewable energies and try to reduce um, greenhouse gas emissions. There were, as I said, some big corporate social responsibility initiatives. There were there was a law that was going to require better reporting on emissions so they could keep track of them more effectively, which is an important first step. Um, and Russia was never a leader in global climate change, but it was a participant. And I think now it a little bit remains to be seen. Um, the degree to which it continues to participate. And of course, Russia's economy in some ways is even more dependent on oil and gas. Yes, they're not selling to Europe. Yes, now most of it is going to Asia. But given the contraction of other sectors of the economy, weirdly, you know, unexpectedly, perhaps I should say, oil and gas can are playing an even more significant role in the ability of the economy to, to weather sanctions. So that also is very unfortunate for climate policy. This all sounds very depressing. We've talked about a lot of these challenges, right, going forward. And I, and I think that's that's realistic. But I'm wondering what what are the signs of, of hope when when you look towards the longer term, maybe how, however this conflict ends eventually, do you see that that there is enough of a foundation of environmental activism in Russia that those seeds that were planted many decades ago, um, can, can regrow and that we will actually see the Russian people pushing for some environmental action? Well, I'm certainly heartened by the fact that environmentalists in Russia, whether during the Soviet times or more recent times, have weathered a lot of challenges and obstacles. And many of them have refused to give up. And many of them have been quite innovative in thinking about new strategies of activism that could make a difference. So there's a source of optimism in just that human creativity and just that determination. I also think that the generation that's under the age of 35 or under the age of 30 in Russia is a very different generation. And they grew up with very different expectations. They want to live in a modern and civilized country. And Russia's going through, you know, obviously a really horrible period. And, and, and there are some very important and difficult debates about the degree to which Russian society is, 
you know, complicit and important part of the Russian war effort, whether it's just passive or whether it's um, it's also to blame for the war. But I do think this next generation of Russians, at least just prior to the war, had a very different expectation for how they would live and grow up, what their lives would be like, and their expectations for the government as well. So I think that's also a source um, of cautious optimism. Um, I think there's a deep love of nature in Russia, and there's the same care for children and children's health that anybody would have around the world, and that those things won't go away, and that any regime that governs Russia will have to grapple with them sooner or later. And in fact, because the environment in some ways, in some issues, was seen as less politicized than things like human rights or, you know, gender or, you know, other forms of activism, Mm -hmm. um, environmentalism might be among the first to come back, uh, you know, when conditions are somewhat more favorable. Yeah, certainly it would seem so, right? That's a, a safe space, if you will, compared to so many others. But as you've researched, it's it's not always seen that way. And it's hard to predict how the government will react to, again, whether it's forests or clean water or the Siberian tiger, uh, to, to the extent there's foreign funding that might get in the way of it. And yet without foreign funding, it's hard to see a massive effort developing the professionalism needed to, to move forward. So it seems to me, uh, based on your information and insights that there's still a long way to go and a whole, whole lot of hard work that'll have to go into making this work. There's a lot of hard work, but I'll just give you one example. Around the time of the forest fires in Moscow, uh, there was a tremendous outpouring of volunteer labor to help fight those fires. And there was massive crowdfunding, people donating the equivalent of $10, $20, $30. And so people were finding a way. And I, I, I have confidence that Russian environmentalists one day again will find a way to try to protect the environment. And that is a fascinating point. Well, at the end of each conversation, Laura, we turn to our chatterbox and I reach in and find a randomly generated pre-printed question for you. What book or books are on your nightstand? Or if you read ebooks on your Kindle or if you listen to books in your Audible list, but um, what, what are you reading now or what do you have coming up that you're looking forward to reading? Such a great question. I have to say, as a college professor during the semester, I don't always have as much time to read as I would like. <laughs> I'm going to mention a book that I just read recently, which is a little bit on topic for us. And that is a book. It's an older book. It's <laughs> by Francis. I don't know how to say the last name, actually. S-P-U-F-F-O-R-D. Spoofford, Spufford, and it's called Red Plenty. My husband made fun of me. He said I was the only person who could read a novel about the five-year plan and find it so absorbing as I did. Oh, wow. That's the topic? uh, Yeah, but actually it was very well-received and well-regarded. Since I wasn't expecting this question, I don't actually have at my fingertips the year of publication or anything like that. But it's a remarkable um, novel based on certain true elements of history. It's kind of a fragmentary novel that dips in and out over about a 50-year period, looking at different people who played pivotal roles in the five-year plan um, and different people who experienced the five-year plan, both the enthusiasm, the excitement that you could harness the economy for the good of society and actually create abundance. And then also people who are becoming 
disillusioned and concerned that the plan wasn't functioning as it should and really dealing with some of the negative manifestations of the plan. It's also about scientific freedom in Russia. It's about the early days of computing in Russia. It's about controversies over biology among Russian intellectuals. And it's just really, really fun read. So I what a fascinating mix of, of ideas. You know, again, you, you first said that and I said, really? That's, that's good. But when you describe it that way, it really does, you know, kind of create a new literary genre of itself, right? The, the, the historical novel in a new way from different perspectives. That's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I looked it up here and we'll, we'll put a link to it in our show notes for everybody. Um, fantastic cover, by the way, it's just very iconic, you know, Soviet, uh, imagery there. Um, looks like it was published in 2012, at least this version that I'm finding. Yeah. So I'm a little bit late to the red plenty party, but I still think it probably a lot of people haven't read it. Another book that's not newly published, but published, I think in 2019 that I'm looking forward to reading is called disappearing earth. And it's a novel by Julia Phillips. And it's one of a number of new novels that's kind of grappling with questions about environmental change and climate change. And it's set in Russia. It's two sisters who live uh, in Kamchatka. Um, and, And it's supposed to be absolutely gorgeous in terms of depicting the environment there, but also showing some of the complicated economic and political tensions that lead to environmental degradation. And so that's on my nightstand. And as soon as I'm done teaching courses for the semester, I'm looking forward to diving into that. Kamchatka seems like one of those places. It's stuck in my memory since I was a kid because of the board game Risk, because one of the territories is called Kamchatka. And it's just the most fascinating word when you're a little kid growing up in Illinois. Um, But it seems to me like one of those places that must just be a lot of fun just to go and explore. Have you had the chance to get there yet? I have not been there. And it's I have so many regrets around it because I was once invited to go and they were going to take, it was kind of a an old Soviet military aircraft that had been kind of unofficially privatized and was for rent. And I had some friends in Vladivostok <laughs> who were going to go make wrong? the trip. Exactly. And then I, I sort of looked at it and thought, boy, I really sort of enjoy being alive. And I think maybe I, I won't go on this particular trip, but I have had cause to regret. Hmm. Well, we can get a sense of it through, through that book, which we will also link to. Uh, Laura Henry, thanks for a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, David. I really enjoyed it. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. Chatter.